Hello, everyone. Evan Wickham here from Park Hill Church, San Diego. So glad you're tuning into the podcast. We are celebrating five years as a church in San Diego. This Christmas Eve is our five-year anniversary. It's hard to believe. And God's faithfulness to this church has been so amazing. And we are celebrating by encouraging our community to grow in generosity and giving to Park Hill Church. So I just want to say at the beginning of this teaching, if this podcast has been a blessing to you, if the teachings out of Park Hill Church have helped you and equipped you in your life of discipleship to Jesus, we would love to invite you to prayerfully consider giving a year-end, five-year gift to Park Hill Church through our website, parkhillsd.church. All right, let's get to the teaching. Revelation 21, verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Awesome. Thanks, guys. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Clarks. All right. Good morning, everyone. As I said, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and like we do every Sunday of this season, we're going to be still and be silent in the presence of God. These four candles, hope, joy, peace, and then the fourth, love. We're going to be still and think of the ways where there's loveless space in our lives relationships that are strained and wounds that are there, and give gratitude for the ways the presence of God has filled you with love and filled your life with capacity to love in the way God has loved you through Christ on the cross. So both, we're in that tension. Advent is tense. We long for light and the darkness, and we thank him for the light that's already come. So if we could be still, Holy Spirit, would you come? Meet us in this messy middle place with your love. Holy Spirit of God, thank you that you're present to us. You're near. You're not far. And in Romans 5, it says clearly that you, Holy Spirit, 
are pouring out the Father's love into our hearts because we're children of God through Jesus. Thank you. Would you keep pouring your love into our hearts today? I pray for those that are experiencing a season of intense lovelessness or a, a sense of a lack of belonging. Lord, would you make your presence so known? Make your presence known. Make the way clear. Belonging in the eternal family of God through Jesus is open through trusting in the work of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, come and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In the strong name of Jesus we pray, amen. All right, blessed Advent to you. So as you guys, many of you know, we are finishing our series in the book of Revelation this week. Revelation is 16 weeks, you guys. So today and last week are kind of part one, part two of the grand finale of the Bible, all right? And then Christmas Eve is kind of an epilogue. We're going to look back on Revelation with a Christmas message. So in these final two chapters of Revelation, we just read it. John sees the end of history, and he finds out the end is really a whole new beginning, isn't it? Like the end of the world isn't the end of creation. John sees the beginning of new creation, doesn't he? And so God's ultimate goal is the renewal of everything, and which means Satan and sin and death and pain and the loneliness and the longing to belong. You guys, all of that is gone. And today we get to see what takes their place. So remember last week, we looked at what John doesn't see in the new city, and this week we see what John does see, which is why I think it's important that you get last week too. So go back to the podcast. They're totally connected. So, so first though, let's remember what we're doing. What have we been doing with Revelation? What a crazy book, am I right? Just nodding, some of you, yes. Yes, it's wild. Uh, 16 weeks in this apocalypse. Anybody, what does the word apocalypse mean? Oh, good. There's some of you that have been listening. That's unveiling. Yes, the word unveiling. So when there's cloud cover and it's gray, and you know it's not nighttime because it's two in the afternoon, um, you know, the clouds part and then the sun shines through. That's an apocalypse. It's an unveiling. So San Diego weather is very apocalyptic, right? There's a lot of sun shining through. That's actually what apocalypse means. There's a lot of revelation of the sun. And so, uh, so except last week was very rainy, but you get the idea. The apocalypse of Jesus this book we've been journeying through, it pulls back the curtain of the cosmos and shows us the reality of Jesus who has been on the throne all along. That's what Revelation does. So it may seem like corrupt politicians are winning. It may seem like the media is controlling the narratives and the media holds all the power. It may seem like the end of the world when you're experiencing that job loss or that cancer diagnosis or that deep relational wound, that trauma, or maybe you just can't kick that addiction. Sobriety is like just out of reach. It may seem like those things have the final word, but the apocalypse of Jesus, Revelation comes along and says, things are more than they seem. Things are more than they, there's more on the horizon than meets our naked eyes. Our unaided emotions and senses and ears and all of that, there's more than and then it seems the greatest unseen reality of the present is a slain lamb on a throne in the middle of the universe. And he's in the middle of this room right now, right here. Jesus just behind the veil. Am I right? This is the purpose of Revelation. It's very practical. It's very practical. And it's encouraging for, every, it's encouraging for everyone who admits they need Jesus, Right? Everyone who admits they need forgiveness from God and then submits to Jesus' authority, this is very encouraging. In Jesus' words, the kingdom of heaven is among you. And the kingdom of heaven is also future reality, both. In these last two chapters of Revelation, John sees the future reality of the kingdom of God in its fullness and he's describing it for us. And what we see is that for John, the future is not just a time. 
For John, the future is a dimension of reality that is as real as this present dimension. How do I know this? Because the living God on his throne, he doesn't say, hey, one day I'm going to make all things new. No, the living God on the throne, he says, behold, you have that slide, slide four. He who's seated on the throne said, I am making everything new right now. This is present tense. So for the New Testament authors, the future is somehow a present reality. It's just present in another dimension of reality. This is what we see. So modern physicists, they have like math, mathematical models for all kinds of different dimensions, right? Like 11 dimensions or whatever, and like multiverse is popular in movies now, you know? So, so we can't experience these dimensions, but we have the math for them, right? And scripture, actually scripture has always left room for the possibility of reality as multidimensional. The Psalms speak of the heavens, plural, like what is that? The Apostle Paul, he spoke of being caught up in the third heaven, where he, quote, heard inexpressible words which a person is not permitted to speak. Now, don't ask me what was in their minds when they were saying those words, like what their picture was. I have no idea. But the point is, the Bible has always had ways of talking about different dimensions to reality that are just as real. So the future Jesus reveals to John on the island of Patmos, it's not far. The future's not far away. It's not in some distant time or space. It's close. It's very close. It's just behind the veil. It's pressing in, pressing in, and calling us to live the future in the present by the power of his spirit. So, so when Jesus shows John the fullness of the future, question, what does he see? Jesus shows John the future, what does John see? He sees a city, right? He sees this city, a new city in a new creation. The future is a city, you guys. It's a city whose builder and architect is God. Last Sunday, we talked about what John doesn't see. Now we're talking about what he does see. So right away, I want to call something out. Can I, how many of you have seen a full-on rainbow. I'm going somewhere with this. How many of you, like a bright, all the colors just right there. Um, not just like a faded one. So Brie Golden, one of our pastors, she sent this. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's pretty rad. So this is just Brie Golden on a prayer walk. This is a, a day in the life of Brie. If you know Brie, that makes sense. So she's just hanging out with Jesus and God gives her this. And so, and so I want to ask if, you know, what's the right response to a vision like this? Imagine it's not an iPhone picture, but you're just standing under it. What's the right response to something like that? You, you want to engage it. You want to move toward it. No wonder there's these ancient legends of like chasing it for gold, you know? 6,000-year-old legends in ancient Australia about the ends of rainbows. You can look them up because they're overwhelming to our senses. You take them in, it's like you just want to drink it in, right? So most of us, I'll just... I'll just wager, most of us aren't sufficiently educated in meteorology, <laughs> you know? So we don't wanna, we don't like scientifically know how to break that down. Like many colors of the rainbow, break them down into their constituent, constituent like parts and, and, you know? Because sometimes that can, analyzing it can take away from just the impact, the overall impact of the beauty of this existence here. You wanna drink it in. It's that concept of missing the forest for the trees, right? Or standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you're busy wondering how wide it is or how old it is to just like be amazed and forget to breathe. It's so beautiful. So I say all of this in order to prepare you for the view of the city. The view at the end of the Bible is gorgeous. God even thinks it's gorgeous. You're gonna see why. God is enamored with this vision. The holy city, the new Jerusalem. Don't get me wrong, we will break it down. I'm gonna teach the Bible, so we're gonna break down the different parts a little bit. But it's all for the big picture, the overall visceral impact of gazing on the new city of God. Um, so that's the goal, to stand back. This is not just a dream in the Bible. 
It's not just like a wish, you know, like we talked about last week. This is not like, like Yoda, cloudy is the future, changing it is. No, this is settled because the one who holds the future is actually painting this vision for John and for us. And, and so, so what we're going to see is this city that we humans have been trying to build for thousands of years. With every law we pass, we're trying to build this racially just, gender equitable, economically sound, fairly housed, perfectly zoned, beautiful true city, right? With all our policies, we tried to build this thing. But, but we're gonna see it built now because God will finish it. God's the only one who can. And now John sees it finished. And guess what, you guys? It turns out the only way this city works is with the slain lamb as king in the middle of it. The only way it works is if the whole cosmos submits to the authority of the lamb who was slain on the cross. It's the only way. In the words of Mark Sayers, you can't have the kingdom without the king. Our culture is looking for all the perks of the kingdom, but authority to a Messiah who tells me what to do with my body, I don't think so, right? But you can't have the kingdom without the king. And we see the king in the middle of his kingdom, and it's gorgeous, you guys. It's what everyone longs for in their deepest sense. And we are building, in a sense, this kingdom ahead of time by the power of the Spirit when we plant churches. And when, through justice and generosity and hospitality and prayer and Bible reading, the way we do church, we are an outpost, citizens, ahead of time. So we, we see glimpses ahead of time. Um, because God says from his throne, I'm making everything new. I am making. Is that present or past tense or, or future? I am making everything new. And it's important to point something out right here. God does not say, as I, I believe I wrongly read it most of my life, God doesn't say, hey, I'm just making a new everything. For years, I thought the future meant God hitting like the self-destruct button of the universe and like blowing everything up and starting over with a new plan. So I used to say, you know, it's all going to burn and like think that was encouraging or something. Um, because I read this as I'm making, I'm just making a new everything. Now listen, God can absolutely make lots of new things and I believe he does and he will and he will use, uh, he will partner with us for eternity in doing that. But the point of Revelation 21 and 22 is that God is taking hold of everything creation and humans and cities and making them new, absolutely purging all the sin, Satan, and death out of it. But he's renewing them by, the, by his power, Father, Son, and Spirit. So in part one, we looked at seven things John doesn't see anymore. So go back and listen. And today, part two, we're looking at the seven, seven things. There's probably more you can dig out, but I settled on seven because it's Revelation. Seven's cool. Um, seven things John does see in the new city. Here it is. Number one, you ready? First thing John sees, let's give, let's give him priority, is God. John sees God. Look at this verse. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Look at that, it's like God for us, us for God. God in us, us in God. This is deep intimacy that John sees between God's people and God. You guys, John sees God. John sees God. He doesn't just see any God either. He sees a God with a goal to dwell with us. He's not just God on the mountain. He's God who came down the mountain. That's why at Christmas, what name did the angels give Jesus from the sky in, when they were speaking, singing over the shepherds? His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means what? This was God's goal all along. This was the mission from the beginning. God would live with you. God wants you. He wants to be with you. We say the word love, God loves you, but love gets kind of white noisy in our culture where love means a million different things. God desires intimate, eternal relationship with you and everyone around you. He wants you, God likes you, you could say. 
God doesn't like the things that dehumanize you, the sin, he calls it, because he likes you, because he desires you. And so this, and, and by the way, this is why John sees no temple in the city. There's no temple there. Revelation 21 verse 22 is one of the most amazing verses in the whole Bible. He says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You guys, what does that mean? This, this part blows my mind, so track with me. So what does this mean, that there's no temple but God is a temple? Well, here's the first clue. It's the shape of the New Jerusalem. Do you guys know what the shape, I know it's a weird question, it kind of feels like random Bible trivia. Do you know what the shape of this city is? Square is close, add a dimension. Cube, excellent. Look at this verse. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it is wide, he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia, just, it's really a lot of miles in length, and as wide and high as long. So this is, if it was like a literal structure, it would be like a moon-sized cube is what he sees. So why is this more than just a fun trivia question that you can do at your next party or whatever? Um, does, do you know, does anyone know the only other cube in the Bible? This is wild to me. The only other cube in scripture, remember John is saturated in the Old Testament, he knows his Bible through and through, first century Jew, and so if you read, whoa, the city's a cube, and you're an ancient Jew, all the lights on your dashboard are going off because you know the only other cube there is. It is not just the temple, it's like the hot spot of the holiest holiness in the temple. The Holy of Holies, you guys. If you know, any, if you know the, the, the building of the, temp, the tabernacle, you know this thing is the hot spot of God's presence. Here, here's a, a kind of an ugly map, but it's a blueprint of the temple as it existed in Jesus' day. And so the western wall is on that side. And if you've ever been to Israel, you've seen religious Jews praying at the western wall. Why do they pray at the western wall? Because it's the closest remaining piece of that temple area, the closest piece to the Holy of Holy hotspot. That's that purple square. It's a cube, specifically 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet cube. Israel was obsessed with this cube because in it contained the seat of mercy where God would meet his people and the blood of the goat would actually land on the seat of mercy and God would forgive all their sins and say, I'm present with you again. One, one more year of my faithfulness. One more year of my goodness to you. And, and they, they, they'd get as close as they could to that. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project calls it the hot spot of God's presence. They'd get as close as they can and, and even then only one man once a year could totally enter it with his body the high priest once a year. That's John the Baptist's dad, the whole story of him going, you know, mute, he couldn't talk. It's because he went into that space and he didn't have the right heart or something. And, and it's a wild story you should read at Christmas time. The point is, that space mattered most because God's presence was there. That's where heaven and earth would meet. That's where God would meet humans. They looked to that spot. Why is this important? Hopefully you're making a connection here. So when John sees the future, the whole city is a cube. He's seeing a future where every spot is a hot spot of God's presence. Heaven and earth don't just meet behind a curtain for one guy once a year anymore. Heaven and earth have fully come together again, just like they were in creation. There's no more temple because God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. You can't not be in the fullness of God's beauty and glory and his presence. This is our guaranteed future, you guys. In the future, there is no physical space that is not saturated in God. Nothing exists outside of God's full presence. So John is saying, when we move into that city... When we move into that new city, we move into the triune God. You can take that down now. There's no more temple anymore. So there you go. Just kidding. That was a bad joke. But uh, when we move into the city, 
We don't move into a building anymore. It came off the screen, right? When we move into the city, we move into the triune God. We know nothing exists apart from God. Hebrews says, God holds everything together with his hand, Hebrews 1. But in the new city, it's not just that God holds everything together, it's that nothing exists outside of his personal presence. Somehow, all of redeemed reality will be unfolded in loving relationship with the Trinity, the triune community of love who is God. And listen, if, if you submit your life to Jesus, you are part of this. If you submit your life to the authority of Jesus, my body, my mind, my money, my emotions, my time, it's all coming under the kingdom of Jesus because Jesus Christ gave it all for me. He, the God-man came to earth to dwell with us, teach us, live for us, die for us, and rise so that my whole person can join with all these persons and be part of God's forever family. If you say this and do this through baptism, through confessing your sin and then being baptized into the family of God, this God-soaked city is guaranteed for you. Guaranteed, you guys. In the words of one New Testament teacher, in the new city, the saints no longer stand before God, but live in God, being completely surrounded by God, even as God lives in them. Which brings us to the second thing John sees. John sees God, and immediately John sees a marriage. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. See the three sevens? That's John's way of signaling. This is really important. This is the final climactic moment, 777. What does he see? Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then for the following 23 verses, it's just detailed descriptions of gemstones and golden streets and pearls all around her. It's the bride. So, so... Who's the bride? It's the city that's the bride. Who is this city bride? It's the multi-ethnic people of God. Multilingual, multinational people from every generation who are washed in Jesus' blood, filled with the Spirit's power to live faithfully to her husband, Jesus. You guys, we are the wife of the lamb communally. We are the lamb's wife. And the father is breathing out his spirit to prepare a bride for his son. That's us. We are the bride. You know what that means? It's very, I know it sounds like, oh, that's a pretty metaphor. We're the bride. But no, it gets very practical. You know why Park Hill Church, you know why we practice the way of Jesus? All that entails, we practice the way of Jesus because we are preparing for a wedding. From the moment you are baptized... You're preparing for a wedding with the engaged community of God. So if you've been around our church for a while, you know we talk about baptism like a wedding ceremony. And it's true. For individuals, baptism is like a wedding. Like a wedding kicks off a marriage just like baptism kicks off life in the community of God. That's true as individuals. But communally, you guys, we're globally, the whole church, 2.56 billion Christ-confessing humans we are engaged to Christ together. We're, we're communally engaged to the slain lamb, pledged to be married eternally to Jesus. And now everything we do is to be empowered by the Spirit, preparation for that marriage. Everything we do. I know we're very far from perfect, which is why we come to the table constantly to receive Christ's body and blood, forgiveness of sin and spiritual empowerment to live again life in the kingdom. So, so what does that mean? It means, you guys, we don't become Christians so that we can just grow into better people and make the world a better place. You know this. Those are great things. I hope the world gets better. That's not bad. Better's better than bad, right? Um, but that's not the big why. We don't just become Christians and grow in Jesus so we can be like more well-being or something, even though that's great. The number one reason why we grow in Christ-likeness is because we are getting married. We will be in union with Jesus. That's our, we're fully on track. The lover of our soul, our rescuer is coming again, and when he comes, we will join him in the ultimate marriage relationship. That's really what this whole thing is about, you guys. 
It's Jesus for us, us for Jesus. Jesus even took it kind of more into awkward, intimate language. He talked about him being in us and us being in him. John 17, he prayed for us like this. He said, Father, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. God's end goal is a marriage. And not just a marriage, but the marriage. Every other human marriage in this room is meant to point to the marriage, the only eternal one. You see, for Jesus, so the elders of the church, so the elders approved, I I spend some more time on this just because of the nature of Park Hill Church, where we're at with marriage and unmarriage, singleness and all that. So I want to, I don't know why I call it unmarriage, singleness. Um, Married and unmarried individuals. So for Jesus, you guys, human marriage was never like the ultimate goal of being human. If it was, Jesus would have got married. Understand? So he didn't think it was the goal for all humans. For Jesus, the ultimate goal for all humans is union with God. It was always the goal. If, again, if he thought it was the goal, he would have been married because he is the goal. But he didn't. Jesus was single. And that actually tells us a lot. When you look at Jesus and the New Testament writers, you get this picture of marriage and sex and singleness that feels very different from the picture we get, yes, from secular culture, but also, honestly, sometimes from modern church. Yeah, like even the church has gotten this marriage thing kind of wrong sometimes, this marriage and singleness, like how to emphasize it. And so in many ways, the modern church has put out this idea that marriage is like the be-all, end-all for a meaningful life or a requirement for ministry or the measure of full maturity and like, hey, what's wrong with them? They're old and they're unmarried. There must be something wrong, right? It's like poor Jesus, like poor Paul, just energetic single guys who like to travel a lot and visit other people's houses. You know, they're these single guys, right? But but in reality, Jesus and Paul were, what were they doing? Jesus and Paul were living into the ultimate marriage already. They were pulling God's future into the present. They're pulling God's future into the present, living in the new city where human marriage will cease to exist. Did you know this? Guaranteed, human marriage ceases to exist in the new city. Jesus has this throwaway line when he's debating the religious people of his day. It feels throwaway because he just says it so fast. He's like, wait, 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 unpack that, Jesus. But Jesus doesn't unpack it. And he says, hey, so at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. And he just moves on. It's like, oh, what are you talking about? There's so much there I do not understand. What does it mean to be like the angels and therefore unmarried? I don't understand. Uh, I'm like, say more, Jesus. But apparently, that's all we need to know. Human marriage will not exist in the new city. But guess what? Neither will human singleness. According to the New Testament, human marriage and human singleness are both temporary gifts, both beautiful and difficult and temporary, as we all journey toward that final destination, which is whole person union with God and each other, and the categories of human marriage and singleness dissolve in the light of the Lamb. Okay, so check in. How are you guys doing right now? How many of you, so how many of you are married right here? How many of you are married? Raise your hand. Okay, the clock is ticking. (laughs) Like for real, it's temporary. How many of you are unmarried here? Just as many. Okay, same for you. Listen, the, cl- the clock is ticking on that. The clock is ticking. You will not have a lived experience of embodied singleness or marriage in its current categories in the new city. You will have something more embodied and more intimate and more united than anything we've ever done or seen or experienced as human beings. So to the married, I just want to say, your marriage is a living picture of what's coming in the new city. So guard it. Like embrace the difficulty of self-denial and fully other-centered on that person. Live that well. Wives, husbands, 
The way you love and honor and serve each other gives the world a powerful preview of that union of the lamb and his bride to come. And to the unmarried in this room, both gay and straight Christians who are following the sexual ethic of Jesus, well done, you guys. Your whole life, your whole life of sexual chastity, celibacy, all of that, it reminds the rest of us of what's coming. Your life is directly pointed to that ultimate marriage. And it reminds the rest of us of the faithful life we're actually all living for. You're already physically living, like Jesus and Paul, into that true marriage. Thank you. I know I'm married and I'm talking about marriage and singleness and celibacy, but I was talking to a celibate 40-year-old guy this morning. He's like, hey, I'm one single, happily celibate, single man who's deeply in favor of other people getting married and I'm called to this single life and I'm cheering on the marrieds in this church just like the marrieds are cheering on me. This is how it is to be. This is how it is to be equally in the church of Jesus Christ. So so we'll talk more about marriage, sex, singleness, and all of that next year in our house of learning. So move on. We're going to hit the last several very quickly. The third thing John sees, he just sees glory everywhere. It's everything soaked in this thing called glory. The city doesn't need the sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light. The lamb is the lamp. John just sees glory. So what's glory? All through the scriptures, when you see the word glory, it's always God's full presence effusing outward and changing things. It's the presence of God affecting change around whatever the source is. So, so God's glory through you. What's God's glory through you? It's when God's character is somehow made visible through your words and actions. This is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, you know them? That is the glory of God made visible in the world. And apparently in the new city, that's all there will be. I have, I have, trouble, I have trouble imagining a world that, that, that is purely purely dripping in the glory of God and the fruit of the Spirit. In the story of Moses and Israel's exodus from Egypt, God's glory was like whoosh on the tabernacle in the desert, and now in John's vision, God's glory fills everything. There was a hot spot, now everything is the hot spot. So somehow in the new city, all of our unique characteristics, like who are you, what do you like to do, your personality, all of that is, will somehow become perfectly aligned with the character and personality of God. The ancient prophet Habakkuk's vision will come true. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Question, how do the waters cover the sea? I just, my brain just exploded. Like, the, the waters are the sea. What does that mean? Exactly. The whole earth covered in the knowledge of God, the experience of glory, inseparable like waters and oceans, inseparable. You guys, bring it. Holy Spirit, come. Jesus, come. And finally, uh, not finally, number four, creatures. What John sees, he sees creatures and he sees creativity. So he sees like a creator who makes creatures to create. And it's really meta like that. So, so John sees materiality. What does that mean? Stuff. John sees stuff. Stones, gems, pearls and bricks and gold and water running. He sees stuff. The Christian vision of the future is very earthy, you guys. It's earthy. George Eldon Ladd, one of my favorite guys on the end times, he says it well. The Bible always places men and women on a redeemed earth, not in a heavenly realm removed from earthly existence. You guys, God made us for earth. What's the name of the first human? Adam, that word, you know what it means? It literally means human. It's the Hebrew word human. So what did God make Adam out of? The Hebrew word is Adamah. The Adam was made out of the Adam stuff. Or you could reverse it. The earth, God used the earth to make earthlings. That's literally the Hebrew. We are earth stuff made into image bearers of God. 
The destiny of God's people is not just to go to heaven in some ambiguous, amorphous, forever floating space. We are and will always be earthlings, earth creatures, created for eternal creativity on earth as resurrected, renewed earthlings in a new heaven and new earth, or alongside the creator of heaven and earth. You guys, isn't this one of the main points of Christmas? That God became earthling. The word became flesh and lived on earth among us. God became what we are, flesh and blood stuff. This is also one of the main points of Easter. That flesh and blood body came out of the earth. Our God is, so contrary to popular opinion, the Christian vision of the future is not otherworldly. It's new worldly. The new city is God's original earthy dream fulfilled. And in the new city, there's going to be peoples and kings and cultures How do I know that? Because just read, all the kings bring their glory, their banners, their creativity into this space that is soaked in the presence of God, all creating more and more civilization. You guys, the Bible allows us to dream big. There is no dream for the future that does not fit in Revelation 21 and 22. So question, will there be better Beethovens? Okay, good, I like that answer. Will there be better Rembrandts? Will scientists continue to advance tech for God's glory? Like the evil algorithm outrage will be gone and whatever the new one is will be like glorious. You know what I mean? All the tech. Will architects keep building stuff for God's character? Will there be incredible new like ventures into what we call outer space, but by then we won't call it that probably. We'll know more. As we discover more of what God has made. So yes to all of the above, the new city is filled with unceasing creativity. In the beginning, God commanded the first earthlings to what? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule, subdue it. And I don't understand all of what that means. It's a big mission. But let me, t- let me tell you, in the new city, we're going to do it right. Be fruitful, multiply, we're going to do it right. So what John sees, he sees God, a marriage, he sees all these things. And number five, he sees peoples, plural, This would have shocked the lifelong Jew because God has a people, the Jews. But this word peoples is different. It's a word for multitudes of peoples. So here God gathers up the full range of the world's ethnic diversity and God doesn't erase ethnicities. He doesn't erase ethnicities. Just like he doesn't erase creativity and stuff, he doesn't erase ethnic identities. So no one ethnic group can manifest the full image of God, you guys. It takes all of us. It takes all of us. And in the new city, we're all there as God's multi-ethnic family. And so very practically, since that's our future, and since Revelation is asking us by the power of the Spirit to pull the future into the present as we live out Jesus' prayer, Father, let your kingdom come, if this whole thing is headed to a multi-ethnic family and city, then we might as well seize the opportunity today. Syrians, Mexicans, Canadians, Armenians, Kenyans, Koreans. We're all going to be there as God's plural peoples. Peoples, he has. And then number six, John sees raw life. Like we think we know life now, but the version we have now it, it pales to this one. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Literal liquid life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood a tree, an organism of life, a, a, a life made into life personified as this tree bearing 12 crops of fruit. What's 12? The people of God, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. This is for all the people of God, yielding its fruit every month. It never runs out. God's faithfulness and his life never ceases. There's no winter. There's no lack of harvest. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of nations. You guys, apparently, there's real healing to be done in this city. Wait, I thought you said there's no pain, no sorrow. Yeah, he will wipe away every tear, but there is clearly the presence of healing. Healing. God doesn't just erase your past with a snap of fingers, minimizing your experience without a reckoning. 
God gets to the core of your trauma, the core of your grief and loss, and he redeems it meaningfully from the bottom up with the very leaves on the tree of life that were originally used to cover shame in the Garden of Eden. God now opens up these leaves, and the, sh- the shame-covering leaves are now the very ones applied to your shame that bring healing for you and for the nations around you. God doesn't minimize and erase your story. He redeems, which is why John sees life. This isn't life with secrets. This is life abundant, unhidden, unashamed, and naked, and fully intimate, and fully present. You can lock eyes with someone, never look away, because you're not afraid of eye contact. As a matter of fact, that's the last one. The The final thing John sees is the face. And they will see his face. Perfect intimacy. This is what we're preparing for my friends, total, unfiltered intimacy with one another and more than one another with the face of God. You guys, this is the part that kind of gets gets me emotional. So can can it be that our faith, our faith will finally become sight? Like faith is an expired provisional driver's license. You're now an adult. You don't need the license anymore. You don't need faith. What's faith for? Evidence of things unseen. What happens when everything becomes seen? Faith is expired, you guys. Can you imagine a life without faith where trusting is not a muscle you have to build up anymore? You're fully present to the unhiddenness of God, and he loves your unhiddenness. And everyone around you loves the unhidden you. This is God's goal for you. This is what you're invited into when when the invitation to receive Christ comes. Come, belong. Belong into the family of belonging forever. Uh, My friend Josh White wrote this lyric that I love. There will be a day when all will fade away and all that will remain is loving you face to face. Jesus, I pray that you would come today and faith will be replaced with loving you face to face. So faith is this trust In what I can't see, God is faithful. Hope is this, I'm going to anchor in the reality of God's promises. But listen, what happens when you, what happens when everything you were wanting to be is actually here? Faith and hope are obsolete. And and what's left? Faith, hope, what's left? All there is is love. The love candle is, is this week. What happens when love fills all? You guys, faith, it's an expired driver's license. If you are in Christ, this is your guaranteed future. Hope is no longer an essential category because the full substance of what we hope for, the full city is arrived. Full presence. So according to Exodus 33, Moses wanted to see this. Show me your glory. I don't know how to get into the land without seeing your glory first. And God's like, I have shown you. You have my words. And he's like, no, I need to see your face. I need to see your glory. And, and God's like, okay, but if I show you my face, God says something like, no one can see my face and survive. <laughs> so uh, I'll show you my, like my comet tail. I'll like, go by and show you my afterburn. That's literally what happens. You should read Exodus 33 and 34. So, so God kind of hides Moses so Moses doesn't spontaneously combust. And God walks by, and God's like, all right, now open your eyes. And, and he, sees the, he sees the afterburn of Yahweh. And it's so much, and it's beautiful, and Moses sees God's character. And then Moses is known as this guy who basically kind of almost always saw God's face because he was close. So Moses got close. But in the new city, listen, something happens to our flesh and blood where we're no longer in danger of the glory Something happens. We're changed. John says it like this. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves. So there is something to be done. You have this hope. 
So live, practice the way of Jesus. Live like it. Purify yourself just as he is pure. I'm sure of this. Something's going to happen to us that will make it possible to see God's face and live. Not just see his face and live, but live because we're seeing his face. Truly live. And it says, they will see his face and his name is written on their foreheads. You guys, what does that mean? God's name is his character. He's sealing us with his character. Without erasing our personality, he now aligns us with his character. So everything we do as us is actually not only who we were made to be, but it's how he would do it. This is who God will make you in Christ. If you are in Christ, Jesus will make you this way. And every time we come to the table, which is what we're going to do at the end of this gathering, eat the bread and cup, we're saying, Jesus, I'm faithless sometimes, but you're faithful to step in and make me faithful like you are, even when I mess up. And I know I will next week in some way. So I'm settled on the hope of your promise that you will keep making me you will keep making me like, like you. And you come back to this table saying, Jesus, you will keep making me like you. I'm going to purify myself as best I can. Forgive me for where I failed. You will keep making me like you. That is why we come to the table. And so this isn't far away. This future is not a wish. It's not some distant thing. It's right behind the veil. There's an ancient idea of like coming to the table and seeing the veil between heaven and earth get thin. That's what happens at the table. We come to meet with Jesus in an intimate way. This Jesus who says, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. You know what that means? You know what that means? Jesus is saying, I'm there at the beginning right now. And I'm there at the end right now. I'm the source of everything, and I'm the destiny of everything. And so he's saying, hey, guys, the future is just as beautiful and secure as me. The future is just as secure as I am. Come live in me. So I'm, I'm asking you, will you come live in Jesus? So if you don't know Jesus and you're here, the invitation is to step into life in Christ by confessing him as Lord and that his death on the cross makes forgiveness for your sins possible. Not just that, but belonging forever in the city. So if you're not a Christian, come. We'd love to pray for you uh, up front um, as we're coming to get the bread and the cup. But listen, all the rest of us, we're all the rest of us who are Christians, what's one area of your life that is out of alignment with this beautiful city? And it's like, Jesus, I'm coming to your table saying, take that, make me what you see me becoming. Take my agenda back into your hands, Jesus. So can we stand up together? We're going to come to him and sing a last song and uh, eat and drink of the table. But first I'm going to pray just to move us in. Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you. You're so good, so present, so present to us. You're making everything new. Even us, you're making us new. So we say yes to the work that you're doing in us. We say yes. And one of the ways that you gave us to say yes is to eat and drink the bread and the cup that you gave us. This is the work you're doing. So have your way in our midst. Have your way, even if it means reorienting our ways and us repenting, even it, whatever it takes. Jesus.